Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO-FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Included on Peter Gabriel's 1980 self-titled album, was an ode to the leader of South Africa's black consciousness movement, murdered in his prison cell. Perhaps best known to American audiences from Richard Attenborough's film Cry Freedom, starring Denzel Washington and Kevin Kline, Biko is today part of the pantheon of South Africa's liberation struggle. To speak with me about Biko is Chlolela Mangu, author of Biko, a biography. Mangu is a professor of sociology at the University of Cape Town, a widely read columnist, and author or co-author of six books. He did his doctorate at Cornell University, and he's held fellowships at a range of international institutions. Peter Vail, professor of humanities at the University of Johannesburg, has described Mangu as the most interesting, certainly the most engaging voice among the new generation of public intellectuals in South Africa. And I'm so pleased to have him with me today on CounterPoint. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Chlorena, for an American audience who may not be familiar with Bantu Steve Biko, Tell us who he was and why he was important in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Steve Biko was um, a leader of uh, a movement that came into being after the banning of the African National Congress, which was regarded as the main liberation movement in South Africa. And that movement, which had existed since 1912, the movement of people like Nelson Mandela, was, as we know, outlawed in 1960. And people like Mandela were, were taken to prison where they were incarcerated for so many years, 27 years in the case of Mandela. And so when that movement was outlawed, there was a little bit of a, uh, of a silence in South African politics in the black community for about eight years or so, where there was just uh, a lot of fear with respect to how to respond to the oppression of black people by white people under the system of apartheid. So Steve Biko and a group of students who were studying at the University of Natal emerged in that context. And they emerged to say we need to revitalize and rejuvenate the liberation struggle, the liberation efforts, even in the absence of people like Nelson Mandela 
and Robert Sobukwe and many, many other people, even in the absence of the ANC, the African National Congress. So he came out of that context. But it's also a context, of course, that internationally was characterized by the black nationalist movement, for example, in the United States, by people such as Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, and on the African continent, the, the dominant voices among black nationalist movements were people such as Franz Fanon. So it was a period of radical black nationalism. So Steve Nico came into the political arena as a young student leader who was influenced to some degree by those philosophies, even though, of course, as I shall point out as we go on, a lot of his thinking comes out of the long, long struggle of black people themselves in South Africa. And we'll certainly get back to that. So he became the leader of what was termed in South Africa the Black Consciousness Movement. The Black Consciousness Movement, I guess, has its analog in the United States and internationally with the Black Power Movement and and Black Nationalism. Tell us a little bit more about what Black Consciousness was. What did it stand for? What were its positions? What had happened in the aftermath of the outlawing of of the ANC and the imprisonment of people like Mandela is that a a few white individuals, uh, people like the uh, the late Helen Sussman, became the spokespeople for black people because, you know, there was so much fear in the community. So it was only a few white um, leftists and, and, and liberals who could actually speak out because, you know, they were, um, some of them were in parliament and some of them, including Steve Bigot's friend, uh, Donald Woods, they were editors of newspapers. But because they were white, they had some level of protection. And so they, they were articulating the, the needs of black people. But uh, people like Nigo found something really, really troubling and uncomfortable with having white people, no matter how well-intentioned, uh, articulating their own aspirations. Because, you know, the, the, what, what, it, what this was doing unintentionally and intentionally sometimes was that it was not articulating what black people were actually uh, feeling, what black people were experiencing. So Biko and his colleagues were saying it's only black people who can speak for themselves, who can tell their experience instead of speaking through intermediaries such as these white uh, liberal leaders and, and, and white newspaper editors. So in addition to insisting on black voices articulating the perspective of blacks in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, what else were some of the black consciousness positions? How was it different from, let's say, the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party, or even from the party that influenced Biko a little bit, the Pan-African Congress, which had also arisen and was banned in this period. Tell us a little bit more about how Biko was different from black leaders as well. What's important to keep in mind about Biko and his generation is that they were students. It's very, very much a movement that is initiated by a group of 20-something. Actually, Biko was 21, 22 when he started the movement with his friends. And of course, it was a 
much more radical temper that they had and they were influenced by a radical student movement that was taking place around the world. If you recall, there were all kinds of student rebellions in places like Chicago, in places like uh, Mexico City, in Tokyo, all over the world around 1968. There was this cultural student revolutions were taking place all over the world. So the difference mainly with the earlier generation was in terms of their radical approach. The African National Congress had, since its its foundation in 1912, basically approached the white government with all kinds of petitions. They would send all kinds of deputations and delegations to the white government to ask to be included in the political system, to ask for political rights to be extended. The Black Consciousness Movement rejected this approach, and they said, we don't have to ask We must demand and we must assert these rights as ours because we are the majority, we own this country. So they they took a a different approach from the begging, bold type of approach that had characterized the old timers, if you like, for such a long time. Now, the African National Congress itself had undergone a transition during this period because, of course, they're banned in the aftermath of the massacres in Sharpsville in 1960, and they had begun to turn to modes of violence as a means of resistance against apartheid. But it seems the main difference between the black consciousness movement and the ANC had to do with this policy of interracialism versus an insistence on black representation in the course of the movement. Can you expand a little more on that? What then happened with the movement, because the black consciousness movement was responding to this dominance of white activists and white liberals, the leadership of the movement said, if as black people we are going to articulate our demands and our aspirations as best we can, let us close ranks as black people and let us not include white people in our ranks. So that we can assert ourselves. But they were also just suspicious of whites and how they might turn out to be working for the apartheid government. They decided to to adopt a go-it-alone strategy. Now, they were not the first ones to do this because the Pan-Africanist Congress, which had been formed sort of as a split from the African National Congress, had split from the ANC on similar grounds, that the ANC was too much infested. That was part of their language with whites, with communists and liberals. So the Pan-African Congress, which was formed just before these organizations were outlawed in 1960, was also adopting this go-it-alone strategy. The difference, of course, is that the Pan-Africanist Congress focused mostly on the African continent. It got its inspiration mostly from politicians and from political philosophies of people like Kwame Nkrumah, whereas the Black Consciousness Movement saw itself more as a third world movement that was drawing not only on on the African continent, but from places such as Latin America, for example, from people like Paulo Freire. It had this broader, you know, approach. But also the Black Consciousness Movement had in its ranks what in South Africa are called Indians, which are people from India who came here in the 19th century. And the Black Consciousness Movement also had people who are called Colored, which are mixed race people in South Africa, whereas the Pan-Africanist Congress was very purist in its approach. So part of what you're telling us is that in actuality, they were intercultural, but what they wanted was a set of affinity relations between people who had been identified as black or really as non-white by the apartheid government. I remember also, to paraphrase Biko, there's this one very memorable line in your book where 
he says that part of the problem with white liberals, and by that he meant leftists more generally, part of mm-hmm. the problem with them in the movement was that not only was the white regime kicking blacks in South Africa, but white liberals were telling blacks, telling how, they blacks were- how to respond to the kick. I can finish that for you. <laughs> So just expand on that a little bit more about why it was that this group of students really believed that even amongst left-thinking whites within the student movement, there was a problem with them representing their causes. Why is it that well-intentioned whites could nonetheless not represent the black position in ways that Biko and the black consciousness movement insisted on? What really precipitated the split from the white students was when the black students noticed that, you know, the white students were really not ready or willing to actually take on some of the sacrifices that black students had in any event to face. For example, you know, there would be a conference or a meeting where the black students and the white students would be together. But, you know, when they have to go to sleep at night, the black students would be told to go and sleep in the black township. So Steve Nico stood up in this one meeting in a small town called Grahamstown, and he said to the white students, if we as black students are going to sleep In the townships, in the segregated townships, and in a church basement, you white students must come with us as an act of solidarity. And the white students refused. And the white students elected to pass a resolution condemning apartheid and the fact that it it segregated people. But they were not willing to kind of walk the talk. They were willing to condemn apartheid, but when it came to sacrifices, white students, the black students discovered, were not willing to go the whole hog. I think part of what you're saying is that the black consciousness movement, what was radical about it was they began to point at the systemic and institutionalized ways in which racism operated on an everyday basis as well as in terms of laws. One of the other things that you've pointed out is the fact that they were so incredibly young. Biko begins to become seen as an important leader already in his early 20s. It seems that part of the reason that he was able to generate energy around himself as a leader is that he had that certain je ne sais quoi of leadership. What were some of the qualities of of Biko the man, and why were they important to his leadership? You know, as a biographer, I have traced his life all the way, obviously, to his childhood. And he always was the center of attraction from when he was young, from even when he started school, that in our township, because I come from the same township, I grew up in the same street as Steve Biko. And it's, it's a small community. But as I track his life through high school and through university, he was very much of a charismatic charismatic individual. He's incredibly, incredibly intelligent. His peers tended to gravitate towards him. Whenever there was an issue that needed to be discussed about how to respond, because remember now, the old leadership is in jail. Many people are out of circulation. And so Biko, you know, in his group of friends, emerges as this charismatic, magnetic individual who leads the discussions, who becomes the intellectual leader of the group. Even at the university, when he gets to university and forms the black consciousness movement, he is widely and universally regarded as the man who can articulate these ideas. And he had this ability 
to write. So he could take whatever was discussed at a student meeting and he could put it down uh, on paper and circulate it throughout the country. At one point in the biography, you have someone say this about him. Steve was the outgoing, gregarious, party-loving, sexually ebullient man, fertile in ideas, and a voracious reader of anything relevant to his one consuming passion for liberation. It seems as if in this portrait that you write of him, he almost made political activism something that was fun. Yes. Can you say a little more about how that was actually important in organizing, that he made politics sexy in some ways? And, and these were university students. So university students, they drink, they, they do all the things that students do. And if you want to attract them to whatever you are doing, you must make it an attractive proposition. And so the way they organized was very different from, the again, the way that the ANC and the older people had organized. Part of that, of course, is that they had parties and they had girls around, they had beer. And it is in that milieu that Nico would then call people aside and say, all right, here are some of the political issues that we now need to put into the situation. So that by the end of the party, a few people walk away with some political ideas about what needs to be done next. And they did this even as they left university and they took it into the townships. They went into what are called shibins in South Africa. Shibins are, are speakeasies. They are the places where people would hang out for drinks. And the other dimension of it is the cultural dimension. Whereas the ANC and the older leadership did not pay much attention to issues of culture, what the student leaders did was to use culture as a tool for mobilization. So they would write plays. So theater was a big part of the black consciousness movement. Music was a big, but poetry was a big part of the movement. So they used cultural tools as a way of attracting even more students into the movement. And that was really key because Part of what they were doing, similar to the black power movement in America, is reversing the very terms that structured racism. So they were revalorizing the very term black by insisting that black is beautiful. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to Counterpoint. I'm speaking with Grolela Mangu, author of the new biography on Bantu Steve Biko, the leader of South Africa's black consciousness movement. Now, one of the things about Biko is that he's martyred at a very young age. I think he's 31 when he dies. Yes. You write in your chapter on Biko's death, news of Steve Biko's death instantly reverberated around the world. While there had been deaths in detention before, no one thought that in their savage madness, the security police would kill someone of the stature of Steve Biko. Chlolela, Tell us the story of how Biko was murdered in September 1977, and tell us why Biko had become such a threat to the apartheid government by that point. The movement was started around 1967-68, and so 10 years later in 77, the movement had gathered momentum. Young people were, were leading the movement. One of the high points, of course, was a tragic event of June 16, 1976 in Soweto, where hundreds of, of young school children were shot and killed by the police. But this was a demonstration of the consciousness raising that the black consciousness movement had achieved in the black community. And Nico was universally at this point regarded as the leader in the absence of people like Mandela. So there was no suspicion, even though the apartheid government had killed some people, including some of his friends, that they would actually kill the leader himself. 
And he was killed in the most brutal of circumstances. One of his major projects as the leader of the movement was to unify all of the liberation movements. So he was in the process of having all these unity talks between the ANC, the PAC, and the Black Consciousness Movement. And the apartheid government got wind of this. And though they tracked him, and they tracked all his movements, so on this particular day, he had been traveling to Cape Town. He was not supposed to, because he was banished to our township, he was not supposed to move outside of our township. But Steve Bigo being Steve Bigo went outside of that banning order because he felt he needed to have a meeting in Cape Town. And it was on his way back from that meeting in Cape Town that he was arrested near a town called Port Elizabeth and taken to a police station. And there he was brutally beaten, naked, tied to the walls, and just beaten until he fell into a state of unconsciousness by a group of policemen there. And then, rather than taking him immediately to the hospital and to help resuscitate him, they decide to end up taking him all the way to a hospital in Pretoria. What happened is that when these cops realized that they had actually probably injured him fatally, they then arranged with a number of doctors to write certificates that would basically be a cover-up of what they had actually done. All this time, Steve Bigo is naked on a cement floor with his hands tied to the wall, thinking that they might probably salvage the situation, put him on the back of a Land Rover, and they took him on the back of that car naked for about 700 miles from this town called Port Elizabeth to another town called Pretoria near Johannesburg to a hospital there. And this all under the cover of darkness because they're trying to hide what is actually happening at the back of their car, which is Steve Bigo, of course, literally dying. Biko once said, the method of your death can itself be a politicizing thing. Was that the case for Biko's death? The news spread like wildfire throughout South Africa. I was a little boy in our township. I mean, I can still remember the commotion in our township when that happened. And all of a sudden, throughout the country, in places like Soweto, students came out on the streets. Everybody was protesting his death. The United Nations, I think, they passed an embargo in 1977 against the South African government. There were sanctions imposed on the South African government. The whole world was appalled and angered by what they did. Peter Gabriel wrote that song, Biko. The whole world could not believe the brutality of it all and just how far the apartheid government was willing to suppress its opponents. And it is the case that his funeral itself became one of the largest demonstrations, a huge public moment. In fact, this became something that was repeated over and over again as people were martyred in the course of the liberation struggle. Their funerals became opportunities to engage in political activism, and this began with Biko's funeral as well, didn't it? Yes. You see, what happened with Steve's death is that a lot of people literally said, you know, if they can kill Steve, they may as well kill me. And that was the general attitude throughout communities in South Africa. And I saw when these folks came to our township to bury Steve, he was buried in an open stadium because there was no venue big enough for the funeral. It was the first 
political funeral in South Africa. The first time that people would come out in their thousands, there were at least 20 or 25,000 people from all over the country at that funeral. And then, of course, funerals after that became a political ritual that people used to mobilize in their thousands. By the 1980s, you would get something like 50,000 people coming to a funeral of political leaders who were then assassinated in the 1980s. So clearly, his death had really become a politicizing thing in the black community. How he could have written about that before he died tells you a lot about the kind of leader that he was, that he could see to the future. But he was not a saint, right, in my book, of course, that Steve was a prophet, but not a saint. He had his own shortcomings as a young man with multiple relationships, as a young man who would like to have his drink and all of that. But above and beyond that, he was really regarded as the prophet who basically was going to be the transition between the age of Mandela and the age of our democracy, the man around whom the country really became mobilized. Chlorella, I want to put you back into the story because one of the interesting things you do through the biography is tell a little bit about your own relationship to Biko in the context of this township, Ginsburg location, King Williamstown on the Eastern Cape in South Africa. One of the things Biko did when he was banned was continue to engage in community organizing in that township. Tell us a little bit more about Ginsburg location What was it like growing up in that township, which was itself a microcosm of the larger apartheid South Africa experience for most blacks? And what were the ways in which Biko then was trying to engage in community organizing to alleviate that situation? It's almost incredible that we were living under those conditions. In fact, when I tell my children the story, they think I'm exaggerating. That's how bad it was. I mean, we, you know, we, had, we didn't have any tarred roads. We would go for days without electricity. And there was this incredible, incredible overcrowding because, you know, you had these one-roomed houses where in one room you would have eight to ten people, a couple with children living under these circumstances with, uh, with no toilets. So you'd have hundreds of people sharing one public toilet. It was one of the poorest, poorest communities, like many other poor communities in South Africa. When Biko was banned and restricted to this township, one of the things he decided to do was to really concentrate on community development. This, again, is another different element of black consciousness which differentiates from the ANC and the older liberation movements because those movements did not pay attention. But with Nico, he started organizing community development projects. He started getting people to organize themselves, to provide for themselves. And the main, main ethic, the main message was that of self-reliant development that and and he was drawing of course from other uh, uh, leaders around the world and uh, in places like Tanzania from people like Julius Nyerere but it was the idea that even if they oppress us even if we are poor um, we shall not allow them to deprive us of our humanity and so the way we're going to reclaim our humanity is not to depend on them but to actually start our own projects, provide as much livelihood as we can for ourselves. And I remember those projects in our community. He started a health clinic, for example. He started a nursery school, a kindergarten, and he started a scholarship program. So he was involved with the community, even as he was mobilizing communities politically. 
Now, I think, Cholil, it's so interesting that you say that your children don't even believe what the circumstances were like, because, of course, there are still huge townships in South Africa that remain in this condition of, of real destitution. I think 60% of people under the age of 30 remain unemployed. There's huge <laughs> problems with housing, huge problems with infrastructure. It's hard to fathom that South Africa has only been a democratic country since 1994, it's something like 20 years since Mandela first was released and came to power. There are huge problems yet to be overcome in South Africa. So why is it so unfathomable for your children when it's still all around them there? What has happened in South Africa is that some people have done well, you know, relatively have done well. I'm a professor at the University of Cape Town, which is the leading university in Africa. So you find a situation where my kids, their relative lifestyles are going to be different from those in those rural communities that barely have any drinking water. So I take it upon myself to make sure that they know that and they are exposed to, to that. And we haven't done enough as a government to bridge that gap. There's been a lot of self-enrichment, a lot of corruption, and in many ways we have failed as a government, many of our people. So the challenges are, are as glaring in many ways as they were when we embarked on this, uh, on this journey of democracy. Some of our schools are failing dismally, dismally, and it just makes me upset that we haven't done some of the basic things that Nico was talking about. Just in terms of self-reliance, for example, how can we get our schools to work better. What you're describing sounds so much like what's going on in Memphis today and around the United States today. So in the post-segregationist, post-Jim Crow America, which is something like only 60 years old, 50% of African Americans today are a part of the middle class, but there's still a significant underclass of African Americans. And one of the things that you do at the end of your book is to discuss the relevance of Steve Biko to South Africa. I wonder if you could generalize a little bit and talk about his relevance in terms of places like Memphis, which is living in its own post-apartheid situation. Why is Steve Biko's message still important and resonant? It's important and resonant because Steve Biko did two things at once. On the one hand, he provided a very strong critique of white racism. And on the other hand, he, he called on black people to be self-reliant. And he showed that those two things can be done together. And so what I think is generalizable is that you need a combination of government support, of public policy that is supportive of community initiatives that are based on self-reliance. You can be able to provide such a synthesis. You need both. It's not an either-or situation. That's the first thing. The second thing is culture. And Nico looked at culture as a resource that people must always use in reclaiming their identities, in reclaiming their sense of themselves in the world, and that in itself inspires them to challenge the system politically while also initiating their own projects. Rolela, there's so many aspects of the biography that we never had a chance to discuss. In a way, you take Steve Biko's life and you use it as a window to give us a sense of a much longer history. Indeed, you go back all the way to the 18th and 19th centuries to show the ways in which Biko is himself a late 20th century version of a very long struggle of Africans against colonialism and then later against apartheid. 
we never had time to get into all of that. But thank you so much for being with us today on CounterPoint and for helping us to understand that the civil rights movement properly understood is to understand that it was really part of a global movement, which is part of what Steve Biko brings home. It's the ties that bind. There's a book called The Ties That Bind because these relationships between the civil rights movement go back to the 19th century when the founders of the ANC were studying under people like W.E.B. Du Bois and, of course, uh, under Booker T. Washington. And many of these ideas have passed through the generations and they became, of course, much more politically radical over, over the years. So Steve Biko is part of this global chain that is transnational, and, and so his relevance is also transnational in that sense. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to the show in its entirety, visit WKNOFM.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. CounterPoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.